Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone. We're absolutely delighted to have Simon Evan Cook on the podcast this week. Simon is a multi-asset fund of funds manager with over 25 years experience in financial services. He began his career with Fidelity before joining Rothschild Asset Management and then Gartner. He joined Premier Asset Management in 2006, where he built his reputation as a senior member of their award-winning multi-asset team. The latest chapter in his career began earlier this year when he joined Downing Fund Managers, the boutique-listed fund business. Simon is also a leading columnist and blogs regularly on his website, nevermindthesilverbullets.com. Simon describes his day job as one that depends on good decision-making and solving complex problems. He also realized that these insights are useful in the real world, so he's committed to going deeper into the world of tough problems, and that's exactly what he shares on his blog. In this episode, Juan and I enjoy delving into the decision-making styles of Pan Solo and 3CPO, overcoming lazy averages, learning how system thinking can help you solve Christmas, and much, much more. This podcast was recorded remotely, and as a result, the sound quality isn't as perfect as it could be, but this does not ruin a cracking conversation, and we hope you enjoy. Simon Evan Cook, welcome to the 50th episode of the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thanks. I had no idea this was number 50. I'm, I'm glad I didn't know, because I think I'd have been nervous beforehand. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure now, but yeah. very happy to be here. Thank you. Um, for those that don't know who you are, can you give us a brief summary of um, yeah, who is Simon Evan Cook? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously the challenge there is the word brief, but I'll, <laughs> I'll give that a go. Um, uh, as you say, my name is Simon Evan Cook. I'm a fund of funds investor, which means that I buy the funds of other investors. So I don't uh, analyse equities. I don't analyse bonds. I analyse people who buy equities and bonds. In fact, if I ever give you a recommendation to buy a specific equity or a specific bond, you should instantly ignore it because that is not what I do. My expertise is understanding whether somebody is a good investor or not. So over the years, um, I have managed to cobble that together into fund of funds that have done well. They've won awards. They've taken in a lot of money. More recently, I joined a company called Downing, where I'm in the process of setting up. So I'm looking for seed capital for fund of funds currently, but I also have some white label funds running. But all of this is based on understanding what other people do and creating uh, funds that are hopefully resilient uh, and hopefully will be successful for the holders over the long term. I think that you have left out something which is very important to us, and <laughs> the fact that you are the author or of a very 
interesting good blog. Uh, so can you tell us all about that blog? Yes, absolutely. So if I had given you the full version of my history, there's a sort of this writing has been has gone through what I've done ever since I so I graduated from university in 96. I was never particularly good at writing, but over the years I realised that actually I loved it. Uh, I really enjoyed writing. And so my career has been sort of interwoven with writing over that time. Um, at the moment, that has got two outlets. So I also write a column called The Fund of Funds Inside of a Citywide. So that's available if you Google that. You can see some of my more financial-based writings, more investing stuff. But I also found that over the years in trying to become a better investor, I read and learned so much stuff, so much stuff about investing, but so much stuff about other stuff, which then helped me with investing. There were loads of offcuts from that. There was loads of learnings, uh, loads of information which was really, really useful in other parts of life. And so all this stuff was just going wasted. So I wanted to start a blog which looked at all the stuff I'd learned and then tried to apply that in the wider world. So it's not specifically an investment blog. It might mention that sometimes, but it looks at what I've learned in becoming a better investor and how can you use that in everyday life to solve problems. So I, I suppose problem solving is another way of saying decision making. So yeah, if you wanted to have a look at that blog, it's called Never Mind the Silver Bullets. And it's specifically a journey through the world of problems, trying to solve problems. How can you be better at solving problems? I really like that I, I read in one of the pieces what's the um, why it's called sil sil silver bullet, because it's trying to solve, uh, give easy answers to very complex problems. Is that correct? Uh, it's actually completely wrong. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Never Mind the Silver Bullets because one of the things that winds me up constantly through life is how we are always trying to find really simple answers to complex solutions when quite often there is no simple answer to that complex problem available. But the trouble is because we humans are so drawn to silver bullets, ever you you Google silver bullets and you'll find that there is silver bullet to everything or more commonly there you'll find that actually x is no silver bullet for y because those those problems just can't be solved by something simple so yeah my journey is trying to say to people is trying to rally against people trying to use overly simple answers to solve what are amazingly complicated problems i think a really good way of looking at this is when you look at the world of problems, if you imagine those puzzle books that you can buy in, in uh, airport lounges, where they have all these different puzzles in them. If you pick up one of those from someone's lounge or in a waiting room, the ones that are being completed are the really simple problems. And I think that's where we are, stuff that could be solved by one brain or one simple silver bullet has been solved and completed long ago. So what you're left with is the equivalent of a used puzzle book where only the hardest puzzles are left. And those need more complex answers. They need more, maybe more than one person to think about it, or they need you to have learned different subjects to understand them, or they maybe have five or six, seven, eight different answers, which all kind of masquerade as one simple answer. So that's the, the that's my kind of uh, uh, crusade that I'm on with. Never mind the silver bullets. Is trying to say to people, just forget trying to find one simple answer. So forget voting in Donald Trump to solve all your problems, because a lot of people saw him as a silver bullet, right? You know, solve all of America's problems by voting in Donald Trump. As a, clearly, that is not going to solve all the problems, but that's a very good example of how people think one thing can solve this 
nest of problems. That's incredibly interesting. How long have you been writing the blog now? Or so writing the blog for about three years or so, um, but thinking about it, well, forever. I think everybody's always thinking about how to solve these problems because they're problems that are about um, complicated things. So that might be markets. So obviously we'll talk about that later on markets, but it's about complex systems. And we'll talk about systems later as well, but that could be anything from markets to economies, but it could be your garden, it could be your body, it could be the company you work for, the team you're playing for, your root for, all of these things are complex systems. So it's about thinking about that and how can you make decisions or solve problems about these highly complex structures, uh, but in a hopefully in a simple approachable kind of way, because if one thing I've discovered in writing this blog is the word complexity is it's incredibly off-putting. <laughs> Who wants to read about complexity, right? So I try to find interesting ways to talk about this, to use analogies that might be more appropriate to, to your lived experience rather than dry academic language, which is where all, a lot of this stuff comes from. Well, I um, I, you know, I came to your blog after we met last year, and um, I think you've definitely achieved that. I think it's fantastic, and I love uh, the metaphors and analogies that uh, you managed to get into uh, explaining lots of these either complex systems or decision making. Um, Thank you. So yeah, encourage people to, to go out there and, and take a look. Um, one of the, um, I mean, I guess a big thread that runs through the blog is decision making and you're on a podcast about decision making. So I guess that's a good, it's a good place for us to start. Uh, there was one line I read in one of your blogs that really kind of jumped out at me. And you said, our emotional programming isn't suited for the modern world but overriding it often fails too. What do you mean by that? For millennia, certainly for centuries, humans have been making decisions the same way, which is to use their emotions. And that's worked brilliantly, obviously, for years. When you take it back to the, the days when we were all living in caves, then that instinctive emotional decision-making uh, made a lot of sense. It was designed by evolution over generation after generation after generation, the best way to make decisions meant that you survived. So we've got this incredible brain that is designed to keep us alive. I mean, we're programmed to keep ourselves alive long enough to breed and then long enough, hopefully, to bring up uh, your kids once you've bred. And that's really what your genes are driving you to achieve. So we've been programmed to do this, but the trouble is the world has changed enormously over the last 50, 100, 200, 300 years. And so we're left with this uh, incredible uh, brain, but it's perhaps not as well suited for modern life as it was before. So it's designed, you know, if you're out in the open and you're hunting, if you have a, a bad sensation that there might be a target, there's not a real big cost to running off, might be a really big cost to not running off if that target then devours you. But obviously now we're not faced necessarily with those risks every day. And clearly we're talking about finance here. And a lot of those decision making systems can be gamed or hacked um, because you, I mean, you you talk about biases a lot. You talk about um, heuristics. So that is how these instincts uh, can lead us to make bad decisions, particularly in the financial world. And when you look at, um, for example, just the process of buying double glazing, or as recently I did, buying some wardrobes, you know that you can be hacked. There are salespeople out there who know what your biases are. They know that, for example, if they say that this wardrobe should cost you 
£30,000, but hey, today it's going to cost you £20,000 because it's a, a special deal. Then they've anchored you at a high level and then they're now sort of gaming you and making you feel like you've got a bargain. Even if actually the wardrobe is only worth £1,000, you feel because you were imagining 30000 that it's a, a bargain. When you compare the two brains that you've got, so we've talked, yeah, you talk a lot about system one and system two. So your emotional brain is, is commonly known as, as system one. Uh, and your kind of rational decision-making brain that can override that is system two. Now, system one is a super powerful computer. It does amazing things. It can calculate, you know, if I was to throw a ball up in the air for you guys, now 30 foot up in there, you'd be able to run underneath it and catch it. If you asked your rational brain to try and calculate that, it would take weeks, if not months, to try and calculate the trajectories and the speeds, and you just can't do it. It's incredibly powerful. But obviously, the, the rational brain isn't as powerful. So sometimes what I'm sort of rallying against a little bit is the feeling that I think maybe we've gone a little bit too far, that the rational brain is king. We should always listen to that. But actually, sometimes your instincts are right. Sometimes in a financial decision, you just have a bad feeling about a person and perhaps you should listen to that bad feeling. And you see that in markets as well, buying and selling. Sometimes it's the right thing to panic. So, for example, if you were in a super high growth fund in 2020 when the pandemic hit, if it dropped 30% and you panicked and you sold, that turned out to be the wrong decision. But this year, if your super high growth fund dropped 30% and you said this time, right, I'm going to override that feeling of panic, I've learned my lesson, I'm going to hang on to it, then it dropped another 30%. So at the moment, you're sort of sitting on a 60 plus percent loss because you didn't panic. So sometimes it doesn't work. So we need to build that into our decision making. There's a lot to unpack there. But, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but no, one thing that really... Uh... It's what I call the buckets of certainty. Yeah. And it was about how, again, as humans, we make decisions. We tend to think in absolute. So we tend to think this thing is going to... So let's say you wanted to start a business. You either think this business is going to be a success and you do it, or this business is going to be a failure and therefore you don't do it. Now, the, I call those two extremes uh, buckets of certainty, because if you put it into numerical terms, you've got 100% success in one, you've got 0% in the other one. But in real life, particularly when you're trying to predict the future or trying to work out what is going to happen, those two things are they almost never happen. And so the hack is never, ever, ever, ever put anything in either one of those buckets. So even if you are super, super bullish that you're about to start this business and you think it can't possibly fail, I would just encourage you to put it in the 99% bucket. So those two buckets, 100%, 1%, let's say there are 98 buckets between them. You can put them in, in anything there. But if you are a super bullish, optimistic person, then I would, and, I, and you were talking to me and say, right, just take it out of the 100% bucket, put it in the 99% bucket, because as soon as you do that, as soon as you stop using the two buckets at the end, you have to then use two buckets rather than one bucket. So as soon as you put it in the 99%, you can say, right, that 1% bucket, what is in the 1% bucket? Why might your business not, why wouldn't it succeed? You know, if you're a super bullish person, you might just say, well, if I got hit by a bus, it wouldn't succeed. And so, you can, okay, you can say, right, so that's why it wouldn't succeed. But what if you got ill? Or what if you broke a leg? Or what if you're relying on a, a certain customer and that customer 
gets hit by a bus or that customer changes their mind and suddenly you're starting to think actually that's not a one percent chance of failure maybe that's a ten percent chance of failure so then you start to look at other things you start to think about well what if there's a recession what if there's another pandemic something a lot of people wouldn't have considered five years ago but now people will be considering but as we now know it's something you should have considered when we try to express things in uncertainty because of what you're saying there's not nothing's 100 or zero people start to think that you are a pessimistic individual I tend to tell them I'm not pessimistic, I'm paranoid, there's a difference. <laughs> paranoid knows that something could go wrong. He doesn't expect that something to go wrong, but he understands that could go wrong. Do you, do you experience that same? Uh... I absolutely do, yeah. I think being a great investor involves all sorts of paradoxes. Uh, for example, being flexibly dogmatic is a paradox. But what I think you need to be, in terms of what you're just saying, Juan, is you need to be either an optimistic pessimist or a pessimistic optimist. I think if you are just a pessimist or an optimist, I think you're likely to struggle. If you're an optimist, I think the key skill to learn is tempering it, pulling yourself back and just saying, right, I love this idea, but what could go wrong? Now you can either do that personally by sort of learning to do that as a skill, or you can partner up with someone who's a pessimist. I quite like seeing you know, meeting fun teams where, for example, you've got someone who's a real optimist, but maybe they've teamed up with someone who is a short seller. So short sellers, obviously, by their nature, I mean, they can be quite optimistic, but they're going to be optimistic that the company's going to fall apart and fail and they're going to make a load of money from a disaster happening. But if you have those two people together, that's quite a useful uh, combination uh, for how people think about it. I think we obviously we love talking about all this sort of stuff. And there was another line, I promise this podcast won't just become me quoting bits of your blog articles. <laughs> I don't mind if you do. Back to you as, a, as some sort of test, but there's something that, that you said there that resonates with me, if you allow me just to, to kind of read this. So you said that many investors read the book on Bayesian or probabilistic decision-making, sorted it whole, and now worship it as a religion. In other words, they have ironically used it as an excuse to stop thinking. So, I mean, is there a case that this, this can go too far and perhaps we could just unpack that? Yeah, I, I think that there is a case that it can go too far. And I think actually when you stand back and look at society currently, I think it has gone too far. I, so I've used this, and I know you've mentioned this before, but when I've written about these two systems, system one, the system two, the kind of animal brain versus the human brain, I've I've used the terms of, uh, of C-3PO and Han Solo from the Star Wars movies. And I've, there's a fantastic scene in Empire Strikes Back, which was, as everyone knows, the very best Star Wars movie. But there's a brilliant scene where these two types of uh, thinking are represented by these two characters, I think, perfectly, and they come together and they clash. Um, what happens is that they're in the scene, in the Millennium Falcon, you've got Han Solo being chased by these fighters and this big Star Destroyer, you know, lasers blasting all around them, and he's got to try and get away from them and he discovers that he's entering, or he's just about to enter an asteroid field. At that point, um, he thinks this is a great idea. So C-3PO, who is a robot, as the name suggests, you know, tries to stop him and tries to hold him back and says, oh, hold on a minute, the odds of doing this, and I've written these odds down here, the odds of su successfully navigating an asteroid field are 3,720 to one. Now, I think that's a really useful example of Bayesian thinking, where the probability just slows down to Han Solo is a very much a kind of instinctive decision maker, <clears throat> follows his gut. 
and he's about to do this potentially very stupid thing. Uh, so you've almost got C3PO stopping him and saying, right, these are the odds of doing that. That looks like really crazily, uh, you know, short odds or long odds. I always get those two mixed up, which is, can be a problem. Uh, <laughs> these, are, these are crazy odds for doing that, so don't do it. At which point he says, never tell me the odds, and he flies into the asteroid field anyway. So when you unpack that, I meet a lot of fund managers who are a bit like Han Solo, who just operate in a way where they are just, this is a great company, this is a great idea, I'm just going to go and buy it, that's it. Uh, I also meet a lot of fund managers who are just like C3PO as well. They will analyse and analyse and analyse and analyse, and they will just purely go on the data and they will try as hard as they can to get rid of any gut instinct. Now, why it doesn't work is because if you're the Han Solo character and you defy those odds, 3,720 to 1, and you get blown up. Well, what were you expecting? That's obviously a really stupid thing to do. So it's right to stop yourself and say, I need to think about this. But I think our world has gone too far in listening to the C3POs. And by the C3POs, I think you look at academics quite often fit into the C3PO camp. I think a lot of senior decision makers, particularly if you're relying on accounts, if you're relying on an Excel spreadsheet to make a decision, tend to go the C3PO way. So you also need to say to C3PO, stop, hang on, let's look at what you're saying here as well, because those odds that you're using, that you've just quoted at me, what are they based on? Let's let's unpack your 3,720 to 1, because that was based, what, what data have you used to calculate that? Because was it based on, first of all, is the survivorship bias or quite the opposite, actually? Who's got records of whether a ship has actually successfully navigated an asteroid yeah. field or not? Those records wouldn't exist because why would you have a record of whether you successfully navigated it or not? You might have a record of ships that got blown up. So those odds might be wrong for that. But also, how big is the spaceship you're flying? Is it a really big spaceship that could get smashed quite easily? Or is it a little fighter that might be able to maneuver around? How fast is it traveling? And this is before you then get even onto the subject of how good the pilot is who's actually flying that spaceship. So all of these things are variables, and I have no way of knowing whether that's in C-3PO's odds or not. And spoiler alert, uh, Han Solo does survive. So yeah. <laughs> either he's one of those unbelievably lucky guys who was the one in the 3,720s, or he was actually a skilled pilot flying a very sort of uh, a navigable ship uh, that actually it was the right decision because the alternative was being blown up. What are the odds of actually surviving a, a fight with a Star Destroyer? He didn't mention that. So all of these things can put you off making the right decision because you get caught up in statistics. Quite often those statistics are, are wrong. Have you read or come across the, the scout mind, uh, mindset by Jules Gales? Julie no, Gales. I no, I never have. Um, so in this book, which I recommend, it's a short book, it's really good. Um, she brings Mr. Spock from yes. Star Trek. And I cannot say that I'm a Star Trek fan as I have been a Star Wars fan. But I do know that his quality characteristic is that he's, he's, uh, he avoids human biases and emotions and he is like a computer. He, is, he follows logic. And Julia tracks, she, I guess she watched the whole series <laughs> and she sees the prediction that he's making against how that outcome was. And Spock got it wrong a lot. <laughs> I'm so, so glad that's, that someone else has done that because I was toying with it. I was considering Star Trek as well. I just considered that Star Trek 
wasn't quite as well uh, known or as popular as Star Wars. But yeah, that clash between Kirk, so Captain Kirk and Spock, which was the basis of almost every episode. And it was so often it was Spock saying, well, that's not a logical thing to do. It was Kirk saying, shut up, Spock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. And then I think because we kind of, we love Han Solo more than we like C-3PO. We like Captain Kirk more than we like um, Spock. Yeah. We kind of root for that decision maker. We want the gut decision to be right. And we want the geek to be wrong. But the, the truth is the geek is right yeah, yeah, a lot absolutely. of the time. But sometimes they're not. And it's it's that clash. And yeah, to bring it back to your question, Andy, it's about how far is too far, what yeah. gets lost. So my concern with how far, if you like, C3POPian thinking or how yeah. far Spockian thinking is gone is that what are you crushing sometimes when you just look at that data? And when I think the movies are a great example. So Star Wars is a fantastic uh, movie and it's obviously spawned this giant multi-billion franchise. But would it get made today? My concern is that because C-3POPian thinking is so powerful and when people are deciding whether to green light a new movie or not, they are increasingly just saying, show me the numbers. So it's why so many sequels are getting made. It's why, much as I love the Top Gun sequel that's just come out, it's still a sequel. And why almost every trailer I saw when I went to the cinema to see Top Gun was for <laughs> some kind of reboot or some kind of uh, new sort of spin on an old thing. Whereas actually, you think of something like The Matrix, which is one of my favourite movies. Who would make that today? You know, this kind of based on a philosophy, this strange world that nobody had ever heard of that's going to cost millions and millions and millions to, to make. Nobody would green like that because you'd have to get it past an accountant and you'd have to say, say, prove to me that this will make money. And you can't prove that that will make money. So it's what that's my concern is that this sort of expansive gut feel is being taken out of all sorts of parts of our life and we're being left with something that might be safe but it's very very dry and boring and doesn't necessarily create the next amazing experience that, that we're all looking forward to. We spend a lot of time talking about movies actually <laughs> it's really interesting. In fact to, to portfolio managers or how you assess portfolio managers I think um I think you'd agree it's quite important you have you know, we have a bit of Kirk and a bit of Spock or a bit of C-3PO, a bit of Han Solo in there. But particularly given your... Necessarily looking for them to have done it in a mathsy way. What I'm, I'm taking it back, to, I guess, to the buckets of certainties. What I want them, I want to find is with this fund manager is they've had a great idea, but have they tested that from different angles? Have they thought about the worst case scenario? So that's one way. It's yeah. a simple way is you ask a fund manager what's their best idea or what's their base case view on something and then you ask okay I've got that I get what can happen if that goes right and that's really exciting but what's your worst case scenario what is it and what happens in that worst case scenario and I remember speaking to um, as an example a, a gold fund manager going back 10-12 um, years and this is when you were at the end of the last commodity super cycle and gold had been Kind of like what cryptocurrencies have been for the last four or five years. It had been on the front page of every trade or every investment magazine every week. Everyone had been talking about gold and it, the price had pretty much doubled and gone up to about $1,800 in very short order. That always sort of makes me a little bit contrarian, makes me a little bit wary. So I was quite sceptical. But I met this gold fund manager, bought um, gold miners, as a lot of gold funds do. Uh, 
and I asked uh, her, it was, um, what, you know, why should I buy the fund? And she talked very coherently about how gold could go from $1,800 to 2400 to 3000 And I couldn't argue with any of that, right, because I'm not a gold expert. And there was no reason, particularly with gold, which is just a, at the end of the day, a lump of metal. I know a lot of people feel very emotional yeah. about gold, but it is, it doesn't have a cash flow or anything like that. It's just based on what other people are prepared to pay for it. And I said, well, what's your worst case scenario? Uh, and she, I certainly got the impression she was just plucking a figure out of the air. But I think when she talked about her models, she plugged in with all of these companies. Her worst case was $1,400, which to me, and looking at the fact that gold had been $900 an ounce just three, four, five years before. And if you went back six, seven years before that, when Gordon Brown sold yeah. a load of it, it was, Great three, timing, of course. It was yeah. $300 yeah. Uh, an ounce. So you think, well, why are you using $1,400 as a worst case scenario? What happens if it goes back to 900 or even to 300 What happens to these to these companies? And um, within very short, I didn't buy the fund, thankfully, because I was that yeah, just got me worried about yeah. it. But obviously, within very short order, the, the gold price did fall back again. I think it maybe got to 1200 or 1100 so well beneath that worst case scenario. And sure enough, those funds were, they had a horrific time after that. So it was, yeah, it, you've got to make sure that they are thinking about what could go wrong as well as what could go right. So it's about just questioning from different angles and making sure that they are. And, and I guess in tune with what you guys do, valuation is something I, I pay a lot of attention to because if they're calculating a value for what they think a company's worth, then that's in itself just a good exercise. I mean, 99 times out of 100, that guess about what a company is worth will be wrong some way or another, but at least shows that you are thinking about the inputs to them. Something that we've explored a lot on this podcast is everything that has to do with probabilistic thinking and how to adopt a probabilistic mindset. And something that we are very well aware of is that calculating probabilities is just difficult and it doesn't come natural to many people. Yeah. How do you think about that? And do you have any advice or pointers for people that want to get better at thinking probabilities? Yeah, absolutely I do. I think a lot of people get put off by the language, the starters. So as soon as we start talking about probabilities, we're immediately going into the world of maths. And not everyone is mathsy. A lot of people will immediately be put off by that. But I think that is a little bit of a red herring because calculating the odds of whether a company, for example, is going to survive for five years, you kind of just need to learn to trust your own eyes and ears. So I think a really good example of how we can be foxed by um, just, I think it's a form of anchoring um, by just our, our experience, but then you can quite easily overcome that is, and it's a very British thing, and it's about land usage. So one of the things that's always amazed me is that, you know, we're obviously sat in an office now, I'm literally looking out the window at a concrete building. If you were to ask most British people, um, a common moan is that oh, everything's being concreted over. I was having this discussion with an uncle uh, a couple of weeks ago who was saying, oh, you know, this place will all be gone. It'll be concreted over within three weeks. Um, if you were to ask a British person how much of Britain is actually concreted over, most people think that 47% of Britain is concreted over, whereas the actual truth, and this will be surprising to a lot of people, is when you look at the statistics of that, it's somewhere between 0.1% to 2% of Britain is actually 
concreted over. So that would be a surprise to a lot of people. And that I guess that's an example of Bayesian thinking. So how could you actually have worked that out for yourself? Well, think about the last time you got a train, say, from London to Edinburgh, or think about the last time you flew in on an aeroplane. But when you look out at a window at Britain, it is green. I mean, it is overwhelmingly green. There are very few spots where it's been concreted over. If you're flying in at night where there's actual lights, we can take that as a proxy for. Likewise, on a train, if you're going from London to Edinburgh, for example, you will spend 96% of your time staring out at fields and you'll only spend that 4% looking at concrete because the train slows down for the great bits and actually goes faster in the great bits. So there are ways there. You just have to sort of, I guess, stop yourself and just think, is this actually right? I need to have context for that. So the tips I'm using, and I've just started to, to, to use this on my kids. So at meal times, this is something I've started doing, which has meant that my kids have really started to hate meal times with dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so many little kind of experiments I run on them, they'll, they'll kill me for hearing me talking about this, but uh, is to, with your kids, and to practice it yourself, is to give them questions to which there is not an obvious answer. Uh, there was a little meme that went around about this, not about this recent, but it was a great example of it. And it was the simple question of, are there more doors or wheels in the world? And it sort of went round and it went a little bit viral and everyone was talking about this and everyone started thinking about, well, there's cars, wheels on cars, but actually within cars, there are wheels that are operating. But, yeah, then there are doors, but actually cars have got doors. So, they, yeah. so you're immediately starting to really go into it. So I've started to come up with other examples. So we had a... A meal. We were sat in Wagamama's with my two boys um, a few weeks ago, and I just asked them in our village, now "How are there more kids, or there are more dogs?" And you suddenly start to really delve into that question. It's quite fun. You start to look at well, actually, everyone's got a dog, but some people have two kids, and then you start to look at well, how many kids are in the local school? How many people do we know? And you start to piece together. And the aim is to get something that is roughly right you're never going to get the exact right answer to that. And it's ideal, I guess, if you can check. It would be nice if you can phone up. So you could be sat in a restaurant, maybe you can say, I wonder how many pizzas these guys sell in a, in a week. And then you can try and work that out. And then maybe at the end, you can even ask the, the yeah. guy who sells the pizzas, how many do you sell? And, but you're immediately bringing in these different ways of thinking. And, and to bring it back to kids, I think it's so important for us to learn that stuff. But when you're with your kids to actually start them training because so many exams are about answering something precisely about getting exactly the right answer i would love to see exams where there was an unanswerable question in that because that would cause so much panic among people who've just just narrowly focused on passing that but haven't learned enough about the wider world so ask them where's the footsie going to be in three weeks time and then just see them fall apart under the pressure yeah. of that which is maybe a little bit cruel but that's what life's like right you know you don't know what it's going to be like there's this great anecdote from warren buffett or one more anecdote from him where he's sitting in uh, the washington post board of directors at some point in the late 1970s or early 1980s and Someone comes in to present Washington Post the um, business case to launch something on media, dig uh, not media, not digital, but on TV, I think. And he throws some numbers, the person that was presenting. And they say that Buffett almost never said anything during the board meetings. But that day, 
like he immediately questioned the number and he did the maths in his head and he came out to the answer and that the conclusion was that if what if the number that he that the person was presenting was true it meant that every single young person in the u.s were going to spend a set amount of dollars per year and that was a ridiculously high amount to expect yeah and so it, it killed the idea, but it was in, instantaneous how he, he got to the answer just by doing the maths and having some anchor points to rely on and knowing how to get there. Well, that's, I mean, that's just such a great example of questioning. I mean, we've got very good at C3PO's questioning the hand solos and stopping them, but we need to get a lot better at questioning the C3PO's as well. And we've seen it with the pandemic, suddenly we all became statisticians about this is going to cause this, it's going to do that. But it was there's so much data, and so much of that data is wrong in our industry, particularly, and in, in what I do in terms of picking fund managers. So much of that data is wrong that you just have to have a feel for when something is wrong, and you really have to just say, hang on a minute, how have you got to that? What are you looking at? What has gone into that? And then quite often when you start doing that, you can either find out, like Buffett did, that the numbers are just nonsensical or delving within those numbers, you might find opportunities where there's a little gap in that data where actually that gap is the opportunity. That's where the money lies, for sure. That's a great segue into my next question, which is um, in your introduction, you explained how part of your job is to assess fund managers. And so we wanted to ask you, what do you glean from meeting the fund manager, like having that meeting, and looking at the data behind the fund manager. And together with that, if we may, we know that knowing about biases is not enough to overcome those biases. Yeah. So how do you deal with your own biases when you're meeting people? Yeah, sure. I, the, the answer to the first question, what can you glean from manager meetings rather than just data, to me is everything. It's so important to what I do. I could only choose either meeting fund managers or just using the data i would choose meeting fund managers every single time interesting luckily enough for me you can do both and i do do both the data helps one the the empathy side helps the other because it's one of my big bugbears and it, I, I wade into the active versus passive argument a lot uh, and you'll find that a lot of the 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 information the data on the other side so on the passive arguments being created by academics. Now, my experience, the academics have used data and it almost seems to me that they've gone and done everything that they could possibly do. They've done everything. They've removed biases. They've looked at different factors, everything they could possibly do except actually getting out of their office and speaking to fund managers and actually doing something that humans can do, which is to speak to other fund managers. And when you do that, that's an entirely different world. So these academic studies are always based on data. And it's, to me, they're answering a, a question. They answer the question quite often in my world. It's, you know, could, uh, it's, it's, the question is posed as, can an individual pick a winning fund manager before they actually outperform? Because obviously it's quite easy to find a fund manager after they've outperformed, but the, the big thing that's useful is can you find them before they outperform. So they ask this question and then they talk to the data to try and find out whether you could do it or not. And they invariably say, no, you, you couldn't have done that. But to me, it seems that's almost like asking, could an unusually dim robot actually find a, an outperforming manager in advance? Because if you only left me with the data, I couldn't do it either. 
because that data's got so many flaws in it. When you go and meet a fund manager, I mean, you, some of the obvious flaws in the data might be that a fund manager's left a fund and gone to another one. So you've got a completely different fund manager now running that. So that's one data point that has now become wrong because your data set doesn't tell you that it's got a completely different manager running a deep, completely different approach. That data set will also be missing data. So one of the, the things I'll ask fund managers is, are you invested in your own product? Are you have in your own fund? Are you heavily invested in that? And the answer I get to that is instructive. So I will overwhelmingly invest with fund managers who've got a lot of their own personal wealth invested into their own funds because it aligns their interests with what I'm doing. I want to know that they are thinking about decisions and risks as if it's their own money. But that data point quite often doesn't appear. I get the sense that people are trying to address that. Uh, they're trying to get that data point to exist. But even when that data point does exist, let's say for whatever reason, fund managers have to start declaring whether they're invested or not. One million pounds is borderline irrelevant. That's pocket change to someone like him. Or is it a younger fund manager where one million pounds is everything that they possibly own? They're very, very different things. So the data set can be wrong as well or missing stuff. But all of that is important. But really, the really important stuff for me, trying to push fund managers, asking them questions. So I really like it when a fund manager is very honest with you when they talk about their mistakes, when they're really open about what went wrong, and they really talk about that stock that blew up on them. That to me tells me that that is potentially a relationship that's gonna work, that they're learning from their mistakes, that they're gonna be open with you. How on earth do you get that into a spreadsheet? And therefore, I know that's not appearing in academic studies. So it's, it's to me, it's something which you absolutely have to get details from meeting fund managers and I think this is a challenge I throw down to the fund management industry is that we all need to get a lot better at putting out the kind of information that I get to see so being able to see a fund manager talk being able to see the whites of their eyes uh, you know how does he talk about a stock that went wrong how does he talk about a stock that went right all of those kind of details that enable a, a retail investor to be able to sort of get a feel for the human being that they're actually investing with. Because it's not, if I was to do the job now and I didn't have the access I have, it would be really, really hard to get that kind of feeling. Now, and all of that one, I've completely forgotten your second question. <laughs> no, so how do you, because uh, say for instance, in, in some, some fund managers might take the view that if you meet the management of a company, for example, yeah, people, that manage to get to the top are very good at getting to the topics. They're very good at sales. They're very good at selling yes, a narrative yes. for themselves. Yeah. So as soon as you meet them, there's nothing wrong with that, but you get biased by what that person is saying. So how do you deal with that, you personally, when you are dealing with all of this? I've, funnily enough, I've just, with because I've just started at the uh, the new place and I've, one of the, I've, there's a few changes I'm making, nothing, too radical, but there are improvements definitely on what I was doing before. So one of the things that I have started doing is specifically addressing emotional elements of investing because we're all people. And you come out of a meeting and you could have a feeling that you really like someone. I mean, that doesn't mean they're going to be a great fun man. It just, just could be chemistry. I mean, you, we all like some people and meeting them and we dislike other people when we've, uh, when we've met them. So now I'm, there's a specific section in my analysis whereby I say, if I come out of a meeting and I hated that person or I really liked them, 
then it's noted down. So you've acknowledged the fact that you have got a feeling about this fund, better or worse. And at least when it's out there, you know that that bias is there. That's really, really interesting. Um, because when you were talking there, I was thinking again, putting it into the handset of 3CPO framework. What I think, and perhaps what you were getting at part is by meeting people, you're, you're introducing those biases that the hand solo or the more powerful part of the brain, the system of brain can easily jump on and latch onto. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even just writing that down, just being aware of that is helpful because everything else you might say, everything else actually told me something else, but there's just something about that particular individual. Yeah, a piece of paper is a powerful thing, right? Yeah. Getting something out of your head and putting it down is, is always a good idea. Right? Yeah. So moving forward slightly, so you've gone through that process and you've you've uh, you've, you've picked a fund manager. Something we talk about on this podcast quite a lot is about how you learn from your past decisions and you know, outcomes can be a really lousy teacher, especially in investment and even more so over short timeframes. So how do you how do you ensure you learn the right lessons over time? I'm hopefully still getting better, but it's being able to separate luck from skill. And that's an incredibly hard thing to do. And we were just talking about a piece of paper. And the answer, I think, or part of the answer is that piece of paper. So I have something thrillingly called an investment criteria sheet. And what that is, is when I am buying a fund, uh, I write down all sorts of facts about that. So there's all sorts of data on that. So about how big the fund is how many stocks the fund manager said they were going to hold, how big the fund is, how big the fund manager thinks that it could get. All these bits of data points down in there, but I also write down uh, my expectations and, if you like, almost hopes and dreams for that yeah. fund. So I expect if it's a value fund, I will write down, I expect this fund to win when value types of investments are winning, but I also I expect it to underperform perhaps when growth type of investments are winning. So it's about making sure that I'm ready for what it should be doing, because then when it underperforms and there's a good reason for it underperforming, you've got it written down and you think, OK, that's what I said was going to happen. And that is what is going to happen. So the fact that this fund is struggling now is as it should be. So don't worry. Or conversely, if a fund is struggling when it shouldn't be, then that's a point where to, to suddenly start asking questions and worry about what is going on with that fund. So I'd say that is such an important thing in investing, but in all aspects of life, it's just, just to write down your expectations of something because it's so easy for it to creep or for you to fall in love with that investment. And you know, because I'm dealing with people, if you really like the fund manager, and they're doing something different and they're changing the funds. So they were a value investor and then they become a quality growth investor and then they become a high growth investor. It's possible for that thing to creep over time and it's never doing any favors. So, yeah, just trying to anchor yourself on what you expected is, is really, really important. You've used in the past, um, you, you've used the, the words lazy averages. Could you define what that is and how do you think about those terms in management or manager selection? Sure. So a lazy average, I would, it's what I was accusing C3PO of earlier, right? He's basically just said the average ship can't survive an asteroid field. And again, all those problems I mentioned about, well, actually, there are all these little, when you look in that data, all these little bits and pieces within there that are irregular and don't fit with that. That's what I'm talking about. And the ultimate lazy average that affects our industry 
is again that active passive thing. So there's a lot of talk about how the average fund manager can't beat the market because the average fund manager is the market. And when you take into account their charges, then they're going to underperform collectively by the amount that charges are. Now you'll hear slightly different variations on that, but that's the basic thrust of the passive argument. Now I've got a lot of respect for investors who just say, you know what, I haven't got enough time. Can't be dealing with the, the, the trouble of picking a fund manager, so fine, I'll go with a, a passive. I've got no issue with that whatsoever. It's the issue I have is with what I called in an earlier article that caused a bit of a storm: passive zealots, and they're the people who wallop you. If you do anything different from than buy an index fund, they think you're a complete idiot, like you haven't taken this mathematical proof on board. But that is a lazy average because when you look at what that average is, it's filled with flaws and exceptions you know for one in the uk for example uh the data uh that it's built on is quite often built on the uk or companies sector so you'll have funds in the uk or companies sector uh and that is taken that that sector all of those fund managers together basically makes up the uk market that they are the investors but again a bit like concrete in the uk they only make up two and a half percent those fund managers of the market so it's perfectly possible that the average manager within that small pool could beat the index over that time period and sure enough over the 10 years from 2010 to 2020 they did beat it by a long way but also um within that when you look at the data you find that some of the exceptions there warren buffett someone you mentioned and yourselves you know, within the value fund there when you find these exceptions those are the things you should be studying because they're quite often fantastic managers like warren buffett like anthony bolton um like some of the greats from the past so that's where i've learned my trade was not just by looking at the average it's by looking at who are the people who've cheated this average who are the you know five out of a hundred funds who have for 20 30 years just thrash the benchmark what is it they're doing can you find what it is they're doing can you learn from that and can you find other people who are doing the same thing so my answer to the question of can you find good fund managers before they outperform is find ones who've just done that find a fantastic fund manager learn how they operate and then find someone else who's doing that question them and at, at the very least, make sure they're doing something that can be done over and over again, and they're not doing something that's impossible to do. So, yeah, lazy averages entirely annoy me. They must annoy you guys as well, right? Because you're all judged by them. And and again, how long do you compare it over? Is it one year? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? Uh, as value investors, you can look terrible over one year, but still look great over 10 years. So it's the data, again, is so flawed. Thank you. The key point I think you said there is find something repeatable. Yeah, uh, you know that's the. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's what we try to do in our process. I think that's that's the key. If you can find something which you can genuinely repeat over time, then it, that can provide the, that can get you the right side of the probabilities in the long term. Yeah, and ultimately it is still probabilities. Yeah. It's, it's trying. There's no point in me investing with fund managers who I think are trying to do something that's impossible. I just don't what, what's you know and to me impossible is trying to predict where inflation is going to be in three years time or where because of that interest rates and they then base the entire fund on that one prediction because you're predicting something that is impossible so don't try and do impossible things i think what you guys do and what some growth investors do as well 
is possible. I think it is possible for talented, hardworking, experienced individuals to decide whether a company is good value or not, or whether a company is going to keep growing, maybe not every single time, but by enough that if you buy 40 of these companies, then 30 of them will be good and 10 of them will not be good. But on balance, you'll be it'll be enough to beat the market. So absolutely keep doing repeatable stuff. Don't do impossible stuff. On the switch gears slightly, and um, there's actually a point of everyone. So you wrote a blog, a wonderful blog called Solving Christmas, uh, how to make it better next year. Um, I must admit, I, mean, I encourage everyone to read this on um, on that one, silverbullets.com before next Christmas, because it's definitely going to improve my Christmas next year. <laughs> um, it's also got me onto a book, which I'm reading at the moment. But it'd be great if you could introduce our listeners to the concept um, of systems thinking and how it, how it applies to decision making. For me, it's like that moment at the end of the matrix when Neo finally discovers how to sort of think like the matrix and he can sort of see the source code yeah. almost of the whole thing. I think systems thinking for me is almost being able to do that, seeing the source code of life, just seeing how stuff works. And why that is so powerful is because it means that you can take something from one domain and you can use that experience in another domain. So you can go from gardening, for example. Gardening is so rich with amazing metaphors and learning uh, stuff that you can use in investing for example. So um, you know, that's how I talk about how I'm investing. I talk about when I'm managing funds, a lot of people think investing is being like a fighting pilot, right? It's about making sharp, jerky moves, being in complete control of everything. I think it's a lot more like gardening. It's about a very slow moving portfolio. Some bits aren't working, so you should kind of replace those parts. But over time, it's going to move. There are cycles within that that are going to, you're going to see growth, you're going to see it's falling away. You can see some parts working, some not. Gardening is a perfect metaphor for that. So systems allows you to take all this stuff from one domain or another. Um, but specifically when I was talking about Christmas, so Christmas is a system. This is what some people don't realise. You can tell if something is a system, a, a complex system, because it will have three uh, types of thing that are common to all features. So there are elements. So within elements, those are the sort of things that quite often you can see. So within Christmas, that might be the people that are involved in your Christmas. It might be the presents you're buying, the Christmas tree, the movies you're going to watch, the food you're going to eat. Uh, so all of these elements that we associate with Christmas. And because those things are, are the most visual and the most obvious things, those are the things we tend to concentrate most of our time on. But the second feature of a system is that there are interrelationships between those systems. So your body's a system, right? And there's an interrelationship between your brain and your heart or between your stomach and your brain. And they're sending messages to each other back and forth and they interreact. So that's just two parts of your body and there's a relationship between them. Christmas, right? I mean, you just take the, the nightmare of who do you invite over for Christmas? <laughs> Which family members do you have over? Do you mix families or do you try and do it separately? And why that is complicated is because, you know, if you've just got uh, two elements, let's just say it's two people and there's just one relationship between two people. Every time you add a person to that, so you add one person, the number of relationships grows exponentially. So all of that just suddenly makes it so much more complex. And that's before you consider each of those people's relationship with the elements. So other elements. So how do they get on with 
you know, the food that they're eating? Is there a vegan coming along, which means you can't cook the turkey? Is is there, you know, someone who can't be put near alcohol because they do something crazy every time they get near the Cointreau? It's, it's, so there's so much more complexity. So that's just interrelations. You already get to see how systems are so hard to predict, right? Because you, a market is a system and you have got millions of people interacting with each other. So it's hard enough to understand a million people, right, before you then work out how they're all interacting. But the third element or the third thing you've got to consider about a system is that it will have an objective. So every system, and you'll be a system, will have an objective. Uh, so your objectives as a, as a human might be to make money, might be to be happy, might be to achieve a certain bucket list. But it, one of the things that's always common is that system will want to survive. Whether that is a human or a dog or a cat, naturally they want to survive. But even if it's, uh, it's if it's an organisation, like I love the story of the Bank of International Settlements, which is a system that was founded in 1931, I think, and it's still going today. It's doing something different. So they find ways of surviving it. So Christmas has an objective. Now, sometimes that objective drives you without knowing it. Sometimes you, you can drive it. But the advice I was giving is always with any system is to start out with defining the objective. So I know we were talking about this before the podcast, Andy, we're talking about, you know, what is it that you actually want from Christmas? If you don't think about that, you can end up Christmas being your boss, basically. So the Christmas, clearly you want that to be a Merry Christmas, right? But you've got to define what are the next level of elements that will make it merry for you. Now, it might be that you want a break from work, so you need to make sure that that's one of your aims. It might be that you want to make your kids happy, so you need to make a little, that's one of your aims. It might be that you want to have a wild time. That's one of your aims as well. So they're quite hard to solve as well. But you see, if you don't get all of these sub-objectives right, Christmas won't be merry, right? If you do all of the stuff that you don't have a break, you're going to be worn out, you're going to end up frazzled. So you then need to make sure with each of these other ones, you then make sure that you're building time where you go for a walk or, or you spend time reading a book or you watch a movie with the kids. And that ticks your kind of have a break box or, you know, to make the kids happy, you make sure you, you give them time to go and see Father Christmas or whatever it might be. So you have to make sure that all of these things then feed up. Simon, it's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, conversation. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Before we let you go, we ask all of our guests two closing signature questions. The first of those is a book recommendation for our listeners. I'm a fund of funds manager and for fund of funds in this book, you can read Team of Teens. So what this book is about, it's about um, this general, I think going back to about 2010, it's about how he basically retooled the US military from what was turning into quite a sort of almost Soviet communist type system where it was top down commander control. You do what you say, you don't interact, you don't share information between teams, but they were having rings run around them by the Taliban during that time period or operating in a much more fluid, complex way. So that by the time they turn up to try and raid a, a house where they thought uh, a Taliban was hiding, they'd be long gone because they were well ahead of them. So he had to re Change, well, change the military so that they started working in a much more fluid way. They started sharing information, started, you know, the, the guys, the soldiers started respecting the analysts and the analysts started respecting the guys who were, you know, kitting everyone out. And so he 
changed all that and the, the results were, were very, very good from, from doing that. Now, why that appeals to me as a fund of funds manager is my ethos in running funds is that that's what I'm trying to do. I don't think that I personally as an investor have all the answers that you need, which is why I love running fund of funds, because I get to speak with experts like you and I get to invest with experts like you and I get to put you all together in this one fund. And so I've got this almost like a hive brain operating where you're out picking stocks, which are the best value stocks. And I've got someone else who's picking the best growth stocks and you're all very, very good at it. And we all work at different times. So for me, it's about standing back and respecting that and leaving you guys to do your job and just making sure that you're all kind of working as you should be. Whereas I think a lot of my peer group, my competitors tend to operate in the more kind of Soviet model of operating from the top down and you know trying to time value, time growth, get rid of the value manager, buy the growth manager. You know, and I think that's a very dangerous and hard way to do things. So that's why I love that book anyway. Well, great recommendation. We'll be sure to uh, to, to check it out and put, put a link in the show notes as well. <laughs> um, a final question for you is: um, Could you talk about an example? Um, the past decision that you've made, and it could be investment or personal or otherwise, um, that had a poor outcome due to bad process uh, and not bad luck. Yeah, sure. You sent me this one beforehand, so I had time to think about it. It's a, it's a really good question because no one wants to admit mistakes yeah. they made, but it was a mistake that uh, I and the team I was with at the time made very publicly, so there's no hiding from it anyway. <laughs> but, and it's a, it was about, I think, a flaw in our process. And it speaks to what I was just talking about, how top-down investing, I think, is a very difficult, potentially dangerous way. Investing and bottom-up, for me, is, is the way forward. Because back in 2007, I believe, it was within our team to go heavily underweight US equities. Now, we did this for what we thought were the right reasons, which were that when you looked at the valuation of the US equity market, it was horrendously expensive compared to Europe, the UK. So we were operating at a sort of value base, but still a top-down approach. We went underweight US equities, and we stayed underweight US equities, despite the fact that US equities then outperformed from 2007, 8, 9, 10, <laughs> 11, 12. And so we just carried on staying underweight US equities. So I think we basically were for about 15 years in the end, we stayed underweight US equities in a period when US equities just shot the lights out. Um, now, the mistake was... I think that we were was lazy averages for a start because when you look at what's in a market you've really got to take into account that it's made up of different stocks and there are big stocks within that us versus uk is obviously very pertinent at the moment but i think we had an opportunity to correct that so i think going back to maybe 2010 2011 i remember correct thinking actually you know in the, what in the last four years the world has changed because don't forget in that time that the iPhone came out, right? And we started, that's when we started to get comfortable with Google. And it was clear that these things were going to be huge companies. But we were still tied to the fact that we've made this decision. So emotionally speaking, we told everyone we thought US equities were too expensive. But actually, there was a genuine growth reason rather than value reason why we should have done that. So we should have changed it at that point. And then we had to wear 10 years of uncomfortable yeah, regional pain over that time period. Luckily for us, we got the bottom up right. We had amazing fund managers in Asia, Europe, UK, who just did such a fantastic job of 
alpha and beta in their own markets that we were still able to beat the peer group and still able to outperform. But that that's the learning for me and the process changes to completely forget about the top down and just rely on you guys uh, basically finding great stocks for us uh, and leaving you to it. Simon, thank you very much for your time. This was fascinating. I think that you should launch a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe one thing at a time. One. <laughs> thank you.